Hi, my name's Greg Parry, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Global Services and Education. This podcast series is about global leadership. It's about studying and exploring the human behaviors that are so essential to maximize our performance in culturally diverse locations. The world is much smaller now, and it's time for us to come together and make sure we understand leadership as it applies in different cultures of the world. Okay. Well, okay. Welcome everyone to today's podcast. As we know, this podcast is all about global leadership and in particular, understanding human behaviors and how different they might be in different cultural contexts. The world is getting smaller now and I think it's really important that we understand cultural diversity and how to adjust our behaviors and how to understand people of different cultures. I'm really excited today to have our first ever interview. Um, today we're going to, I want to introduce you to um, Tamar Heller, who is from the US. Um, I'm going to let her explain a lot more about her background, who she has been doing a lot of amazing things over the last um, 20 years or so. But um, she's originally from California and now she's based in Shanghai, has been there now for four years. She um, runs a digital um, agency specializing in working with Fortune 500 companies, in particular lead generation through LinkedIn. So welcome, Tamar. Thank you so much, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here and a, an honor to be your first uh, interview guest. So let's, let's go for it. Ask away. Yeah, and no, I'm really interested to talk to you. But first of all, we're in the middle. Well, hopefully we're on the trail end of a pandemic crisis now. It's been a, a crisis of, of literally global proportions. And you're in China, in Shanghai right now. I guess you've been there throughout the whole process. What's it been? What have your experiences been like so far up, up until this time? And even just recently, what's today been like for you? Yeah, great question. Well, um, obviously, in China was like the epicenter of this pandemic in Wuhan. And it's, if people don't know the geography of China, it is pretty far from Shanghai, um, but still it's in the same country. So I think when it first started, especially in Shanghai, cause we're quite protected and spoiled over here. Um, I don't know if we took it seriously enough, but then as the days went by, the numbers started increasing everyone started to panic and take it more seriously. And then of course, when the government in China tells you to do something, you, you must listen. So Absolutely. when the government, <laughs> yeah, you know, like when the government really got involved, then we all took it seriously. We were put on lockdown. So all the cities were locked down and, uh, you know, Shanghai is a city of between 24 and 26 million and imagine it was a, a complete ghost town for almost two months. Mm -hmm. um, particular compounds were really locked down and on quarantine. Uh, the security guards were always checking who was coming in, who was coming out. And really all you saw on the streets were what uh, we call in Chinese the, the delivery brothers who bring the food or groceries or things from the pharmacy. Um, and then the communities organized, uh, I think every week, depending on your community, you could get from the government uh, five masks, but you had to go line up with oh, really? a mask, of course. 
submit your ID, um, show where you're registered and living, and then you could get a mask for free. I never did that. I didn't need that. I, I left mm. my rations for whoever really needed it. Um, but we never got, I think the, the highest numbers we got of infected was just over 700 since January in Shanghai. And because people were so vigilant and really listened to what they were told to do, and we had tracking for everything through our phones, QR codes, all kinds of things. I think that's why we really were able to decrease the risk that now, unfortunately, most of the rest of the world is facing in huge, huge numbers. Now, I will say, we did just find out that yesterday there was kind of a new cluster of outbreak oh, in yeah. Beijing. Yeah. So that's unfortunate, but compared to the rest of what the world is facing, especially my country, the U.S., mm -hmm. um, it really is nothing. And, and we remain vigilant, cautious. Um, we have QR codes to show our health mm -hmm. status. So if you're green, that means you're all good. Yeah. If you're yellow, it means you could have been exposed or, you know, you might not have access to everything. If you're red, definitely you need to go to the hospital or stay home or whatever the, the case is. It's case by case. Even the Metro cars have a QR code yeah. per car and you can scan it oh, wow. so that if someone was infected on your car and you found out about it, it would alert you so that you could mm -hmm. go and get tested and checked yeah. and also too you know the medical facilities here are phenomenal um ai really took like a huge leap mm -hmm. during this pandemic they used drones mm -hmm. to take people's temperatures and wow. in the countryside tell the grandmas and grandpas to go home and stay inside <laughs> um, so that was pretty interesting and um yeah now because we were so vigilant I would say about 90% of the economy here has restarted. Of course, lots of companies and businesses took a hit. Mm -hmm. But relatively, things are almost, well, they're back to a new normal. Yeah. And we still have to wear masks, um, especially on public transit or in crowded areas. Uh, some places are still taking temperatures of people, but it's pretty much back to normal. Like, I walk outside my apartment and there's people everywhere. I live in a very picturesque place where lots of people yeah. take pictures. So it's pretty much normal. Just everyone's wearing a mask. And I think it's going to be that way for quite a while. Yeah. Um, today, I didn't take a metro, but I did take <laughs> a taxi. And yeah, we just have to wear uh, our mask and every ride you take is tracked. So again, just in case if you're infected, if you get infected, it alerts the driver. If the driver is infected, it, it, it alerts you. So everything's super tracked. I know some people might really feel uncomfortable with that, but for me, I felt very safe. Um, I still had freedom to roam around because my compound didn't have any infected people, but other people had to stay in for a while yeah yeah we got through it and now now we're doing okay yeah no i um it, it was no surprise to me that china could lock things down quickly it's part of their culture they're very obedient they um they have different decision making processes in their country and i guess that's why 
I lived there for eight years and I found the country fascinating um, and interesting. And yeah, it was no surprise to me that they could get a hold of it really quickly. Um, well, look, look, there's a lot of propaganda too. And, yeah. and once the propaganda is done well, yeah. people here adapt. So all they needed was the propaganda for it to make people take it seriously. And, yeah. and they did, like you said, they, they complied, they were obedient. Yeah, no, that's great. Listen, before we get really into this, I'd, I'd like to know a lot, you know, if you could share with everyone a bit more about your background, because um, there's more to you than just California and moving to Shanghai. And obviously this podcast is all about, um, you know, global leadership, understanding different cultures. So can you talk about your history of your cultural background and then how you come to, to be in Shanghai and what you're doing now? Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, I'm, I'm originally from California. And uh, there's a joke that most Californians will say, if you ask where we're from, we'll never say I'm from America. <laughs> but, but other Americans will. If you're from California, you say, I'm from California. <laughs> uh, we definitely see ourselves as different as other. So yes, I'm a Californian. And I'm, my grandparents were from Puerto Rico and El Salvador. So that's on my mother's side. So for me, I grew up in this huge melting pot of different cultures. And I know it is different than if, let's say, you're in Europe and you're in France and a German is a German and Austrian is an Austrian and Italian is an Italian. But still, there's like a lot of different cultures in California. So I grew up with lots of diversity, yeah. skin colors, languages, and especially Spanish, mm -hmm. which is what I still to this day identify more with so i think i always maybe from that had more of a global mindset or always wanted to travel live abroad learn new languages yeah. so i actually have lived in spain before a few times i went to study i went to live there when i had my own publishing firm and i was a one-woman show so i could just pick up and go i, I sold my car one year and just mm -hmm. <laughs> went to spain and ended up living with these women, young women who barely spoke English. And it was the best thing for me because it, it really forced me to learn more Spanish, but also yeah. it made me listen really well and really start to pick up what different cultures are and how, how you can still stand out um, according to what you feel your calling is. And for me, I've been an educator for a long time. I've been in publishing. I've been... Uh, an entrepreneur since I was 20. So for me, actually, I definitely identify as like a global leader. But I think that was the first time I really felt like I was becoming one because, because I was the Americana. Everyone wanted to take me out to dinner yeah. or a drink to learn English. <laughs> so I had a really big impact when I was living in Spain. Yeah. But unfortunately, most of the time their English wasn't that great. So I had to tell them, let's just speak in Spanish. So I think I benefited more. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then, and then eventually, like after a few years going back to the States, I just knew it wasn't a fit for me anymore. My mindset, my, my cultural values, uh, and who I was as a person totally changed. So I was looking for an international opportunity again. I came to China, like every other foreigner, teaching English at first. Um, but then, because I like to network and I joined different groups for meetup, mm -hmm. I found lots of different opportunities to get back into 
managerial positions in digital publishing, marketing operations, mm -hmm. and then eventually now co-owning a digital agency here in Shanghai in, in China that specializes in, in LinkedIn lead generation. And I, I never thought, I never thought I would be doing this, but um, I think the most important part, especially being a, a leader, is you you trust your gut yeah. and you go with the flow and you allow life to give you the gifts that it wants to give you. So for me, every day I feel really, really incredibly blessed and just lucky to have this opportunity and how ironic during this historical pandemic that I'm in what I think is one of the safest countries in the world right now. So yeah. I don't take that for granted and I really view it as an opportunity to, to help shape the world in this, this new digital frontier and new normal that we're all yeah. going to face. Yeah. That, that's really interesting. I'm really interested in different cultures. I've traveled extensively to many places and I said, I've lived in China for eight years. And I remember when I first arrived and, and I say to people that, China's one of my favorite places in the world. However, it's one of the most challenging. And people assume yeah. <laughs> it's about the food and the fashion and the language, but it's hard to really explain. I mean, can you talk to me about, like, what was, what was, what was your first impressions of China and how different was it from your other cultural background and experiences as well? I mean, what was it like transitioning and in terms of your human behaviors with other people and getting to know the culture? I mean, what were your experiences? I mean, you know, the difference between East and West is super different. Even if you go to more of a cosmopolitan city like Tokyo, Shanghai, Seoul, Hong Kong, it's just so, it's so different in the mentality because most people in Asia have more of a collective kind of philosophy, especially in China, especially in, in Japan and Korea. Um, so I think initially maybe from a business perspective i was expecting that but i didn't understand how far it went even in your personal relationships and that yeah. this whole relational kind of transactional stuff the what we call guangxi the harmony the relationship was of the utmost important and could often outweigh even your capabilities or skill sets as a person <laughs> yeah. so for yeah. me that was a bit shocking because at least in my culture, uh, in American culture, we're really direct in business. Um, most of the time, we do feel like you have to earn a position. Um, yeah, it is about who you know and networking, but even for me, even if I knew someone, I still had to prove myself. Whereas yeah. in China, you're just like, why is that person in that position? <laughs> oh, because they know the boss. Um, so that was pretty shocking for me and then changes can literally happen overnight and it's on both like a an intangible kind of landscape so maybe like a law will change overnight mm -hmm. or in a tangible aspect a physical aspect a building can be erected almost overnight <laughs> like yeah. you go to bed and there's an empty field across the street and then hopefully if the construction didn't wake you up in the middle of the night you wake up the next day and a, a, almost a whole building is constructed yeah it's really really incredible like how fast everything here changes but how the people here are able to adapt that that was like so so fascinating to me and then of course the food I always thought it would be like the Chinese takeout I get in the U.S., but I, 
I found out that's more, well, obviously it's Americanized, but I found out it's more Cantonese style, like Hong yeah. Kong. I love not, real Chinese food. Real yeah, Chinese not Chinese real. <laughs> <laughs> like, I didn't know what malatang was, which is like a spicy soup, and it's one of my favorite dishes. I had never heard of hot pot yeah. and like cooking your own food in like a soup broth. So that was really interesting as well. The fashion was still is interesting. Um, in some ways, they can be really behind, and in other ways, they're really ahead or very Parisian, I think. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the language. Uh, lots of people here in Shanghai do speak English, especially now, four yeah. years after I've arrived. But there's still, like, you know, places you go to and you kind of have to use what little baby Chinese you know if, if you're still struggling with the language I, like I am. Yeah. Um, I can understand a lot now, but to respond, it's still quite difficult. And it's when I look at the Chinese characters, it's almost like a, a new math problem I've never seen, <laughs> except I can solve a math equation much faster than I can solve a Chinese character sentence. So if, if you don't, if you don't use it, you really do lose it even when you live here and, and it is hard to just pick up. So yeah. those are some of the biggest things for me. Yeah, we, we found that we could, we, the functional stuff came fairly quickly, you know, buying a beer, um, rice, noodles, those, <laughs> those kind of functional things that make sense. Getting a beer cold instead of hot. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't run into those cultural things and you, you get around them. I want, I want, uh, I want that beer cold or bottle of wine, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it's surprising right. what you can learn if you have a particular purpose for, for needing to know that. So. Or that hot water cures everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I've been trying to explain to friends how, how um, you are what you eat is so true in yeah. China, the medicinal qualities. And, and yeah. the friends can't understand why we would drink cold water like it was evil and we're poisoning our body. <laughs> amazing yeah it's true it's yeah. true yeah so, so you said you came to china first of all for education um i guess that must have shaped your world in some respects as well like having a, that education background and can you talk about some of your your, your your past experiences with education yeah actually i decided that i would share with you and the audience one of my darkest moments as an educator which I don't often share, but I think it's, it's, for me, it's relatable because another big thing in China that's different is the competitive, competitiveness of um, education, different schools, um, how much parents will like fight just for their kids to be at the top, yeah. you know, and it, it, it can be the same in Silicon Valley where I'm from um, because as an educator, so I started uh, 18 years ago teaching and for me, I almost always worked in private schools. So the elite kids, yep. the rich kids, the well-to-do families, or families that did sacrifice a lot and they really valued education. But for me, that's kind of the environment that I was teaching. And I've, I've taught every age from two to 65. But my most favorite years was when I was a junior high teacher. So I had kids from 11 to 14. Yeah. And one particular year, uh, it was the year before I actually came to China, I had probably the toughest situation I've ever faced as a teacher, as an educator, as a leader. 
And it was when one of my students who had been struggling all year, um, she tried to commit suicide and she was only 13 or 14 years old at the time. And I mean, there's a lot of tricky, sticky situations I faced as a teacher. A lot of times I've had to be diplomatic, counsel people, counsel parents and not feeling qualified, but you just do it. But this was a completely different horizon. And I remember I was uh, in my classroom on having my lunch break. I got a phone call, which was pretty rare. Um, even five, six years ago, still rare in the classroom, but I got a phone call from my landline and it was the grandmother of this student of mine. And I knew that she had been absent and she wasn't doing well. I thought maybe she was sick or just had a depressive episode. And I'll never forget when that grandmother told me, yeah, she tried to commit suicide this weekend. She's recovering in the hospital. She's under watch. And I was like, oh my goodness. You know, how do you support the family? How do you plan for this student's return eventually? And how do you not totally lose your composure yeah. on the phone, trying to stay professional and not just cry your eyes out? Um, so I knew for sure, like I, I could feel myself getting really emotional because I had known this girl for several months and it was almost the end of the year and I was really fighting for her to get through it. I knew she had a challenge with her parents. That's why her grandparents were, were her caretakers. She also had some physical um, deformities that she was born with. So in that regard, she was really insecure. Um, and she had a a big chip on her shoulder, always trying to act tough, but I knew she was sensitive. Yeah. I never, I never expected this. I never expected this kind of thing to happen. So thank goodness. Um, eventually she, after two weeks or so, she started to feel better. She was getting counseling services and her grandparents wanted to reintegrate her back into school. Yeah. And because I was the lead teacher of all the staff, I was the one charged with helping this girl be restored in her education to graduate. So um, I just really, I told her, I said, listen, when she came back, I know what happened. You don't have to talk about it with me. If you ever want to talk about it, I'm here for you. But here's what's going to happen. I'm still going to keep you accountable to your studies and to finish this year well. You're going to miss a few classes and be with me. I'll, I'll personally tutor you and we're gonna get you through this. So um, just, you know, being an educator, I think people really don't realize what we, we face sometimes, you know, some deep, dark things like this, but then it's what you do after you face it. Are you going to continue to fight for those students of yours and really help them to be the best they can be or are you just going to be like oh it's not my responsibility they'll figure it out but for me as an educator as a leader i really always have taken seriously the calling of a teacher and educator which i still use in business to educate my <laughs> clients yeah. but with children it's different and um the happy ending is that she did graduate Oh, that's great. She is now thriving and doing really well. I think she'll graduate from college in a year or two. 
um, complete, complete 180, complete life change. And her, her grandparents said that because I took that time and I really was there for her and supportive, but didn't chastise her, didn't judge her, um, it really helped a lot with her recovery. So nice. I'm sure a lot of teachers have faced things like this and they don't get the accolades or the recognition. Um, sometimes we all just get criticism because we didn't do the perfect thing. Um, but it's hard to do the perfect thing. Uh, but I really believe when you trust your gut to do the right thing as an educator, most of the time you'll have a happy ending even in dark times. No, it's true. And I was interested in what you said about her behaviours being very different to the reality. And, and sadly, I've got a lot of connections with people that deal with mental illness. And um, mm. you're right. I mean, the behaviours on the outside are often a shield. Um, people that are um, you know, combative or strong or on the outside are often, that's their defensive mechanism because underneath they're quite insecure and vulnerable. So that's the way they right. keep, push right. people away. And you're right, I think teachers um, are in a situation to be able to connect directly with um, children. And, um, you know, sometimes if things aren't going well at home, the teacher can be that connection to move things forward. And I appreciate what you said was that, you know, you provide a discipline and structure and it, it's not just about giving kids a cuddle because that's important, but exactly. it is that structure as well because she's probably missing some of that from home. So, yeah. Absolutely. Um, great that you can um, tell that story and that she's moving forward and on the right pathway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that story has a happy ending. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so in China, have you had a chance to travel much? I mean, uh, I guess the, I know the more I traveled around China, the more I understood the culture, et cetera. And um, so have you traveled around much and uh, what kind of stories have you got to tell about travel in China? Oh yes. I've definitely, taken advantage of how cheap, convenient, easy it is to travel around Asia or even within China. And well, not so much this year, <laughs> but in previous years, for sure. I think even one year I went to nine, nine or 10 different countries one year. So oh, wow. that was really cool. But one year in particular, we have a golden week in yep. China for people who aren't familiar with the holidays. And it's the first week of October mm -hmm. and it's basically the national holiday so it's celebrating the greatness of China and everyone gets a week off to usually go visit their hometown and their family but now more and more lots of Chinese are going out out of China too so for me I decided to take the golden week vacation and I had a really exciting trip planned to meet my parents in Italy so they came all the way from California I came from China and we we met in Rome, had an amazing time, but because it's golden week and there's millions upon millions of people traveling, things sell out really fast, especially to get back. Yeah. And I was really dumb that year for whatever reason, I should have known better. I waited until too late to book my ticket back because I did, I really was like on a budget coming yeah. back. So my flight was fine. And then I got to the south of China to Guangzhou mm -hmm. and I was meant to take a train all the way back to Shanghai. When I, when I went to Guangzhou, I had an overnight train. It was fine. I think I paid for the second class uh, overnight bed and it was perfectly fine, comfortable, whatever, not a problem. But this one going back, 
all that was left was one of the slow trains. Oh, no. <laughs> over 18 hours, standing room only. Oh, no. And I had no idea what I was getting into because I'm still used to even the standing room only trains, it, at least in Shanghai and going close back and forth to, mm -hmm. to neighboring provinces. Yeah. It's not that bad. And I've done it before, but only for 30 to 60 minutes at a time. It's clean. It's fine. This was not the case. <laughs> this was really like, oh my God, I really am in a, like a third world country. And I realized what people here who can't afford the nicer things in life or live on a really low income, like what they deal with. And I, I couldn't believe it. It was probably the biggest culture shock of my life because yeah. for 10 RMB, which is like just over a dollar US, I bought this little stool before I boarded the train. I don't know. I just had this feeling I, I might need it. So I bought it from this little lady selling it outside the train. <laughs> I had my backpack and a suitcase. And there really literally was standing room only. Um, I did get to sit for a little bit until we got a few hours to mm. the next few cities. But by nighttime, I had to give up the seat that I stole. Mm -hmm. I was in the little aisle and it would have been kind of okay. I mean, it's still terrible to sit there like on a little stool and <laughs> sit for like 12 hours. But even at two in the morning, these people want to make money. So all the little aunties who sell the, the stuff on the trolley were coming every hour two in the morning, three in the morning. And they're not quiet. They're like yelling at the top of <laughs> coming through and every time I had to stand up off my little stool like suck in everything so that and you're a farmer and you've got money so I'm sure that you were you were there oh, yeah they were like <laughs> and I was the only foreigner I could see car after car after car and it's the kind of train bathroom that it's the squatty potties I call yeah. them yeah yeah there's no like western toilet yeah. Um, there's lots of signs all over the car that say no smoking, but no one cares. All the men are smoking. Yeah. Even if they're by the toilet, it doesn't matter. It still carries over. And I was just like, I had been awake. By the time I got home, I had been awake and traveling for 66 hours. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I didn't even have jet lag because I was so exhausted coming back <laughs> from Rome. I, I, it was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. But it really opened my eyes again to, I'm very spoiled here. I live like a queen for cheap. And there's still people, there's still people in this world who live like way below the standard of living that I'm used to. Yeah. And, and they're fine. They're still happy. Like yeah. they were just happy that they were traveling. And it really, really, really humbled me. But uh, I learned my lesson. I will always book way at a time and I will never do that again, ever again. But it was, it was an experience I'm glad I went through. Yeah, I, I, I can relate. I've had some of those crazy stories. And this, this might seem like a strange topic for me to bring up. I don't want to talk about Black Lives Matters necessarily. However, Shannon and I have been having a lot. It's, it's prompted us to have a lot of discussions in the last few weeks about how incredibly privileged we are. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm white, middle-class male. So that's three ticks in the box of being privileged for a start. Right. Um, 
but living overseas as an expatriate in a developing country such as China, where I lived for eight years, or Malaysia, um, I am even more privileged. And it, it, I'm, I'm starting to, I guess I've always appreciated it, and it's incredibly wonderful to be treated so well. But um, it's made me feel really uncomfortable because mm. I've, it's, it's made me even more clear it's maybe even more clear about how privileged I am compared to other people in the world that don't have the same opportunities that, that I have. And, and again, having lived in China for eight years, um, seeing how hard children work for their education. Um, and people say, oh, it's terrible. How can they possibly study 12 hours a day, six, seven days a week? It's because they have to, to get ahead. And um, exactly. yeah, it's, it's been, a, it's, it's an interesting reflection for me. That's true. I mean, in on on a positive note, Chinese children are like the best students I've ever taught in my life, except for maybe Korean kids <laughs> who are like, even more like, woo. But then on the other side, you just wonder, are these kids going to burn out? I mean, recently, uh, I think it was just two years ago, um, there was a rise for young children as as young as 12 years old getting committed to a mental institution or hospital in Shanghai because they had a burnout from all the studying and all the pressure. Yeah. So yeah, you do realize like, depending on the country you're from, sometimes you can just kind of bum around and still make it, yeah. still know someone and get a, a good opportunity. But here it's about if you're elite enough, if you studied well enough, uh, the ranking that you got because of that, even Where your you social born. status. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's yeah. really, um, I, I've never seen it in person before I came to China. I only saw it in documentaries and read about it, but it, it's very real. It's very, very real. I mean, what, what advice would you give to, to other people that are planning to live and work in another culture? I mean, how do they prepare? How do they navigate? And I guess particularly leadership and, and their interactions in the workplace. Um, how do they prepare for that and how do they adapt? I, I actually, um, at the time before I came to China, because I didn't even know where Shanghai was. <laughs> I, knew, I knew where Beijing was. I knew where China was. But Shanghai, I hadn't heard too much about it. And I just made sure to do my research by watching documentaries um, historical documentaries on, on Amazon. I had an Amazon Prime account at the time, so I watched everything I could. Um, for me, I'm a big foodie as well, so I was watching uh, Anthony Bourdain and him going to Shanghai or places in China or other chefs that I, I knew and followed. I, everything, like I typed in everything about Shanghai I could find. Um, definitely tried to study a little bit of the language and I actually had a student the last year I was in California who was Shanghainese mm -hmm. so when I told the parents that I was gonna be moving to China that later that year his parents in particular his father was Shanghainese uh, was so kind and came and visited me at the school gave me advice, told me not to worry, everything is in Chinese and English. Yeah. Um, and just said, you know, here's my personal email if you ever have questions or, or anything like that. 
And then I was really lucky actually when I came over, I had a friend who, she lives in San Francisco, but she's Taiwanese. Her parents actually live here in Shanghai. So she was here the first three months as my free translator and telling me more about Chinese culture. But, you know, other than doing some research, other than asking people who have been there before, the best thing to do is when you know you've done your due diligence, release your expectations of what you're going to find, manage your expectations, and then the rest you're going to have to really discover it for yourself. Um, and I think that's more surprising and more fun anyways. Like uh, even when I travel to a different country, I do minimal research now, but I'm so used to traveling, especially by myself all over the world. So I just, I just make sure I know like my transportation and where I'm going to sleep <laughs> and that I have the money. Other than that, I let everything surprise me now. And it's definitely a, a good way to stay in like a, an energy of receiving. And I've met the, the most amazing people when I don't have those expectations. And same with living abroad. I have the most amazing Chinese friends who have helped me so much here um, that I know that if I ever got into trouble, I could just call them and, and they would come help me out. No, I agree. I, I mean, there's so many books written about China and there are so many, there are a lot of people that, that eat up lots and lots of books about Chinese culture, how to do business in China, et cetera, et cetera. I'll be honest, I've read the first chapter of about 10 of them, but I've never read a complete book about how to survive in China. I've had the same experience as you. It's, it's getting connected to people and understanding the culture through the, I mean, we could talk for hours about the, the ceremonial, you know, traditions with eating food and where you sit and the drinking culture and uh, et cetera. And it's just so unique and interesting. And, but yeah, through just immersing yourself in the culture, you get to understand it. And, and by local people telling you the stories and helping you understand the culture, it's, it's far more effective, I, I think. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I guess I'm also fascinated by your work that you're doing right now. I mean, China, China has lots of opportunities, but it's really a challenging place, incredibly challenging for cultural reasons, et cetera. And also it's a big place. So there's a lot of competition. You're obviously working right now in the digital space on helping people build brands, lead generation, et cetera. I mean, what, could, could you share some more thoughts about what you're currently doing and, and how you build communities and, and build leads in a place like China? Yeah, so I mean, China is definitely, especially right now, it's like a filter <laughs> for people who just talk to talk versus people who take action and do what they say they're going to do. They're really entrepreneurs. They're really living off of what, you know, the business activities they're doing and they're not just doing this freelance thing, this freelance and teaching English on the side. I mean, I totally respect people who are hustling, but um, it really will filter out if you're truly an entrepreneur or not. So that's why I like it here. But as you said, it's such a big place with opportunities. Um, there's so much growth. There's a lot of open-mindedness. What I love about the Chinese is that they don't think too long about, oh, is that idea gonna work? They're like, okay, sounds interesting, let's try it. And if it fails, it fails. If it doesn't, great. Yeah. They don't take hours and days and even sometimes years the way that Western companies will. Um, 
to see if something will be approved. There's yeah. not a lot of red tape in business here. As long as you're paying your taxes, especially as a foreigner, like the, the entry is really, the, the barrier to entry is really low. But as I said, like there is a filter as you go on and you see if you will survive or not because it's mm -hmm. gonna kick you hard and, yeah. and you better have thick skin. Um, but for me, I actually started first with community. So I started two years ago, a chapter of LinkedIn Local, which is a global community, um, actually started in Australia. And it's been going for three years. It's now literally all over the world. Even the, the president, Dr. Jianlu, of um, LinkedIn China, he even knows about it. And because of that, we got in touch. But um, I just wanted like a really professional community. I was tired of this networking, this networking, that ne networking, and it just didn't seem quality. So having a brand as strong as LinkedIn really provides a lot of value and parameters for people to network and be professional. And then because of that, it led me to meeting my, my business partner. He actually was at the very first LinkedIn local I ever um, hosted two years ago. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until almost a year later that we met again and really talked about like, okay, yeah, I've been consistent with this community. You see some opportunities for LinkedIn and the, the Asian market, the China market, because it's not saturated yet, like in the West maybe we can give it a try. And initially we started working together doing workshops and we were doing it with like chambers of commerce in, in Shanghai. But then we thought, you know what? We, like we can be bigger and dream bigger and think bigger than this. And so eventually as I took him on to lead the community with me and we saw that we worked really well together, yeah. he had an e-commerce agency that he decided to pivot and change to really take over the LinkedIn market in China and Asia. Mm -hmm. So now, um, after almost a year of working together, now our agency specializes specifically in lead generation mm -hmm. for on LinkedIn for companies in Asia. Um, we also do like content creation services. We both teach about it um, because we teach companies how to uh, use that for thought leadership. Mm -hmm. um, inbound marketing. So, and, and both of us have educational backgrounds. He's actually a, my business partner is a, a professor of digital marketing at Jiaotong University and has taught at other universities before. So we both love the part about educating clients or educating people in our community. Um, because I think for us, like it really goes hand in hand and Nowadays, if you don't have a community, if you're not giving value in business, um, people just look at you as an entity. And especially on LinkedIn, it's, it's not really B2B. It's H to H, which means human to human. Yeah. And so we like to help brands as well humanize themselves the way that we've humanized ourselves and really connect deeper to people, even if it's a, a prospect. Because the truth is, Greg, this is a new normal and a lot of people and businesses haven't woken up to that yet. Mm -hmm. They think things are going to go back to normal after this pandemic, you know, is over. Um, but two things, first of all, it's probably going to last longer than we think and hope, mm -hmm. which is sad, but it's the reality. And the second thing is everyone's getting used to working from home, taking zoom calls instead of in-person meetings, 
um, you name it, everything digitally has shifted and attention has never been higher online. Mm -hmm. If you don't know how to navigate that, you it, basically, if you don't innovate, you're going to die. And it's really harsh to say that, but it's the truth. And we're all fighting for attention online nowadays. Um, so what we do is we really equip businesses and individuals, our clients, we help them to innovate so that they don't die a digital death and that they can know how to move forward in this new normal, how the landscape of digital marketing has changed. So sure. yeah, in a way it still is definitely <laughs> aligned with education just in a, in a different way than I ever thought possible. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. That's uh, that's really interesting. And it's great that you're able to um, have so much impact as a foreigner in another culture. And obviously there's, I'm sure it's been a, a long, a long hard ride to this point, but congratulations <laughs> yeah. on the impact that you're having. And um, I'm sure you're uh, excited to, uh, I'm excited to see the next chapter and see where it goes, but uh, congratulations. It's great to see Me you. Me too. Thank you. And, and honestly, if this situation never happened, this pandemic, I don't know that we would have, our business would have accelerated. Um, people just have more time nowadays to think about your offer or respond or it's so fascinating to have phone calls with, you know, CEOs on Zoom <laughs> that you normally would never get to talk to. But also it's cool because you, you create, um, especially a Zoom and video, you create a really nice rapport because everyone's in the same boat. So I'm grateful to this unprecedented, unprecedented time. Um, I'm sad for the loss that lots of people have faced, but I'm also excited for the new opportunities it's provided. Yeah, no, I agree. We, we've, we, we've been talking a lot about how this has been a test um, for all of us. And um, as an educator, we talk about how we're, the world's changing very fast and we're preparing children for the future, a future that's not yet known. Um, so children need to be prepared for a world that could change quickly as well. You yes. know, when we think about yeah. the skills of adaption and the skills of critical thinking and how to, how to adapt and adjust and change direction. Um, the people that are succeeding right now are those that have been able to adapt. So our next generation of children need to have an education system that serves that purpose as well. So exactly. um, it's, uh, it's been a really interesting time. It's been stressful, but it's, there are opportunities there. So we've got to take those opportunities on board. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. Well, thanks very much for taking the time to, to talk um, to me today. Um, we met online as well. We've never met yeah. anyone. And um, it's been yeah. to hear your stories and about um, your experiences in, in, in uh, human interaction in a country that you didn't know where it was, or sorry, a city you didn't even know existed four or five years ago. So thanks very much yeah. for sharing your stories and uh, let's catch up again soon. Yes, thank you so much for having me, Greg. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like it, review it, share it, and tell your friends all about it. This podcast has a dedicated Facebook page where I will share updates and more information about future podcasts too. Also, check out my LinkedIn page, where I often speak about leadership and share other information about future podcasts 
and new projects that we're involved in. Please contact me at any time by email. It's greg at gsineducation.com. Thanks very much for listening. Contact me soon.